Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode three of Lazypedia. I am Coley Angel. And I'm Bradley. And this week we are going to talk about history. <laughs> yes, we talk about history all the time. That's what we do here. But specifically, we're talking about history as like a study and what is it overall? So what what is history? Yeah, I think um I think it's an important topic before we really kind of delve in. Well, we've already kind of dealt with one uh topic that's a little bit weird if that um makes sense, you know, talking last week we talked about um the kind of paternalistic instincts of the colonists to love King George the 3rd um mm. and their daddy issues that they had. Um <laughs> and it got me thinking this week also because I was caught up in a lot of research myself. What is history itself? Why, you know, why do, why do we study it? Why are there people who devote their entire lives getting PhDs and going on and teaching university students or appearing on documentaries and why are institutions funding historical research? What, what, why does it matter? I don't know. That That's a good question. I think if I had to answer the question just unprompted, if somebody just stopped me and asked me that question, I would say, so we don't repeat our mistakes? Yeah, and that's, that's good and all. Um, I've never been one to really like that that whole notion because people are always, oh, if we fail to learn our history, we're bound to repeat our mistakes. And... One, what defines a mistake? Who is defining what a mistake is? So what what is a mistake to one group of people is not necessarily going to be a mistake to another group of people, if um, if that comes across correctly for me. Um, so it, it's like, so whose history are you going to learn then? The people who won the war. That's so. Th this is this is what I have from high school history. Yeah, I have. If you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. And Victor's justice or Victor's – was there another term? Basically, the Victor's right history, right? Yeah, and you would you would think that except uh, go look at Civil War history and that, you know, you're, you're into another whole can of worms where this whole new narrative of the Civil War has taken place regionally in the United – well, not even regionally. It's spread all across the United States now. You drive up to New York and you see people flying Confederate flags, you know, which is – it's a symbol of hate. And they're flying it under a narrative of the Civil War that simply – does not exist it's not accurate whatsoever and two minutes of research will disprove it but the history has become so culturally ingrained within certain circles that it's now become the historical truth for those certain circles and so that's where i'm kind of like well who writes the history then because in this case, the Confederacy, the South was not the winners, and yet it feels like they dictated how the war was thought of afterwards to an extent. I, I'm not here today to tell you or anyone listening, this is what history is, and if you don't 
think this way, you're not studying history. Because the fact of the matter is, there are so many different types of history out there. Um, and I'm not just talking like, oh, I'm an Africanist or I, I you know, I study uh, Eastern religion. I'm talking like whole different styles of history, post-structuralist, post-colonialist, um, gender studies, empiricism, uh, quantitative studies. Marxist history, even uh, these are these are very different schools of thought and different ways of examining and approaching history and using different methodologies will bring you different conclusions in many cases. If I t tell you my current notion of history, could you tell me which camp I fall into? Yeah, I can try. Um, it's well, here we go. If I can just. I've had to read it twice now. Grad school teachers love this book. <laughs> it sucks. Uh, it really sucks. There it is. Um, Anna Green and um, Kathleen Troop, the Houses of History, a critical reader in history and theory. It's about as dry as it sounds, but yeah, so go ahead. Okay, so my notion of history is that about 50 years ago, there was a time after World War II, and then before that, there was like early 1900s, and there was a stock market fallout in 1920-something, and then before that, in the 1800s, it just fades into like an English period piece. Like everybody is dressed up, a lot of people have very good manners. They live in very large houses, and then that is the entirety of the 1800s as I understand it. 1700s, I immediately think of like big sailing boats mm -hmm. and also like colonial like fife music and drums. And then 1600 starts to be a little bit of a black box. <laughs> um, I guess I think like Puritans, Salem Witch Trials – like no no technology at all 1500s and I'm, I'm really reaching here I, I i don't think of very much at all when i think of the 1500s really same with the 1400s and the 1300s and i'm pretty sure that the crusades happened somewhere in the 11 or 1200s yeah and then i think somewhere around the year 1000 london the city came into being that's what i know about that uh, london's actually even older than that oh my god okay so i don't really know that so before 1000 the years like 900 800 700 nothing happened we stayed <laughs> the exact same everybody was a peasant farmer and it was it was no good 600 500 400 300 100 same thing okay now biblical times Everybody is wearing sandals and they have I they aren't robes but they I guess they are robes. Everybody wears robes and sandals. I don't know what happened besides the stuff in the Bible at that time. Um and then before that we were basically just incapable of doing anything at all for a bit. I think Greece was back there. <laughs> And then there's a bunch of nothing, and then there's Egypt, and then before Egypt, there was nothing. 
Alright, um, I can only take so much pain at once. <laughs> I've been put through a year's worth of pain just now. Um, I know I said I, was, I wasn't going to sit there and just tell you you're wrong, but in this instance, you are very wrong. Um, but this is a failure of, um, of high school and uh, generally uh, entry-level college historical survey courses. Um, I but, knew it. I knew yeah. it was not my fault. Yeah, no, you can, you're, you're, you are a child of the digital age. There is always someone else you can blame. Um, so that was more of what your knowledge is. And obviously it's extremely Western based. So some of these years you were talking about, um, you were like, oh, well, nothing really was happening in 100, 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700, blah, 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 blah. Except there was. You had the Roman Empire. You had various Chinese cliques forming. And um, you had um, you had Asiatic uh, migrations ongoing. Uh, in the Americas, you had different uh, different American um, civilizations forming. Um, okay, qu- question for you, though. What happened in the year 400? Like the entire entire time i mean 400 was oh like from 400 to 500 400 to 500 well um let's see the last quote-unquote roman emperor uh honorius was dethroned in favor of odawaker i want to say that was in 476 rome was sacked before that um let's see the eastern roman empire what were they doing i think they paid off some um they paid off some migratory peoples i don't remember which one specifically um was clovis running around at that time i'm not sure if clovis was running around then um so yeah there's just a very basic thing um but is that really history just reciting off things that happened Yes. So if that's history, then why do, you know, why are we always studying it? If we, we know this happened, so why continue studying it? Because maybe more stuff happened than you know? Or maybe it's a question of why did it happen? What led to oh. it? What were, the, what were the circumstances surrounding it? How did it affect things that happened later? And this is kind of where where different you have your different schools of history is in how they are analyzing it. Um, so, all right, um, let's see here. Let's, let me think of a good one. Okay. I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of a good example and I'm just completely drawing a blank here, <laughs> but. Okay. Let me, let me name a historical event. Okay. And I, and you tell me the different ways to interpret it. Okay. Okay. I can give it a shot. Okay. I'm going to try to come up with a pretty generic historical event. Um, 1776. Declaration of Independence. Okay, so the Declaration of Independence. Um, so we we even touched on some of this last week, and if you didn't listen to last week, go back and cut this one off and go listen to Smash it. Smash that like button. Yeah. Do we have like buttons? I don't know. No. Um, I'm sure one of the services does. But anyway, um, so 1776, Declaration of Independence is signed on July 4th, July 5th, July 6th, whatever you want to do. There's, It was signed over the course of a few days. It wasn't just a single day. Um, and that ultimately broke off uh, the United States, well, pending the resolution of a war, broke off the United States from the British Empire. Um, 
why did it happen? So we talked a little bit last week. The the leaders of the colonies felt like this was the only alternative left to them to defend their rights. Uh, some some people would argue that it was to protect the ruling class. Um, it's hard to kind of apply a Marxist analysis to it because you don't really see heavy class conflict it's the american revolution's real messy in terms of uh loyalism our loyalists versus uh patriots or rebels essentially so it's hard to kind of apply a marxist uh analysis of it um if you wanted to go quantitative um you could examine maybe the number of people who signed the document <laughs> no i would i would say maybe look to the people the 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 delegates who were most enthusiastic about the declaration of independence um you could look at those particular colonies economic status through quantitative history by looking at um applying a gdp value might be really difficult that far back but just just getting a general basic overview of which colonies were making money, which weren't, and by through that kind of look at this where the center of power was in the colonies and examine the numbers basically to show you see see if you can identify any patterns so that there's there's a um there's a way excuse me there is a way to um examine the American Revolution and the build-up to the Declaration of Independence through economic means, through quantitative uh, studies. Um, so the rest of it would probably be more empiricist, where you would kind of approach it like a scientific method. Okay, so if we remove this variable, do they still sign the uh, Declaration of Independence? So in this case, let's say uh, Parliament grants the um, colonies a non-voting Parliament member or something like that. Do they still file grievances and sign the Declaration of Independence because they technically are not represented? Um, I got one. Yeah. They have no feather pens anywhere. <laughs> what? Do they still sign the Declaration of Independence? They have no pens. They sign it with their blood. <laughs> <laughs> Just I mean, a finger, finger paint on it? I mean, if you're that determined that you're going to... Um, if you're that determined that you're going to break away from the most powerful empire of the world at the time, you might as well sign it in your blood because you're, if you lose, you're going to die. So it's a blood pact to sign it anyway, even if you sign it in ink, you're essentially signing with your blood. I know. Nicholas Cage told me that. Oh, really? National Treasure. Yep. Is that in there? Yeah. He says, if the founding fathers were ever captured, they would have their entrails dragged out and burned. And he says that in front of somebody he just met, and he's really harsh about it. But, it's, hey, it's Nikki. Oh, oh, oh. I thought you meant he was talking about they were essentially signing it with their blood, even though it was ink. I thought I thought my cool symbolism thing there had already been used by Nicolas Cage when you said that. Nope. No, well, that's, <laughs> that's honestly a major relief. So, you can patent um, that one. So, yeah, so it's 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 kind of like i guess you could think of the uh different modes of history almost as tools uh you're not going to use a pickaxe necessarily when you're trying to plant a daisy um and that's a really bizarre analogy but i think it's kind of the same way you're not going to apply a marxist analysis of class and economic conflict to a study of um let's say 
the battles of the American Revolution, per se. Like, you're not going to look at the Battle of Saratoga through a Marxist lens. Now, you may look at the loyalties of the participants through a Marxist lens um, if you can identify any sort of uh, class conflict where a upper class and a lower class are going at it. Um, but the American Revolution is just real messy for that sort of thing. So. Okay, right. So what isn't messy? So where where would a Marxist philosophy be best applied or could mm-hmm. be applied reasonably, I guess? So the example that uh, Green and Troop give, let me scroll to it. Um, so they look at the economic background of the English Revolution um, as by a historian, Christopher Hill. Um, he... He uses a Marxist, um, a a Marxist analysis to examine society for the English Revolution, um, and the particular he's he's really looking from about fifteen ten to fifteen eighty or so, looking at different economic factors, um, various regions that are seeing their their economies sink or rise, um, and the upper class continually enriching themselves at the expense of others, basically. Um, and what so he uses this to basically talk about how, why the English revolution happens. Um, so let's see here. Um, yeah. So he has a line here. The point to be stressed is this, there was a great deal of capital in England, which, which merchants, yeomen, and gentlemen were anxious to invest in the free as possible industrial, commercial, and agricultural development. This was continually thwarted by feudal survivals in town and country and by government policy, deliberately endeavoring in the interest of the old landed ruling class to restrict production and the accumulation of capital. So that right there sets it very, very plainly. There is class conflict going on between the old landed elites and the new unlanded or newly landed so it's almost it's it's kind of similar to what we talked about last week so in this instance you could maybe make a marxist argument for the american revolution where we talked about last week how the institutions in the colonies were not equipped to handle these newly landed elites um but i still you know that still kind of comes across as a conflict between the same class with different interest a new elite wanting to overtake the old um so that that, that's kind of what marxism is when you start seeing stuff talking about economic classes and conflict um and like the thwarting of different classes by other classes that's usually going to point you towards a marxist analysis um and uh, most of my work um that i do kind of starts taking on this framework is more of an economic conflict between different groups of people that that makes me think about Batman, like <laughs> you are the hero, but you might live long enough to see yourself become the villain. And I guess rephrasing that, you are the wealthy, powerful person, but you might live long enough to see other wealthy, powerful people decry you and take your power and influence. In certain instances, yes, but not all revolutions work that way. Not all class conflict works that way. Um, y- you could look at, let's say, Russia 
even uh, to an extent, mass popular support for the uh, communist movements. Now, granted, you had multiple communist movements, the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks and all the other Viks. Um, <laughs> and it was ultimately the Bolsheviks that come out on top. Um, and I, I won't get into that that whole mess, but these weren't necessarily um, a lot of these people, I guess, who who support the communist revolution they don't become the elites they they never even sniff becoming the elites you have a very select few of pretty much already well off people or well connected people so you know lenin was well known enough that germany gave him a ride back to russia to go destabilize it um oh wow that's something i i did not know a little nugget of history there oh yeah yeah uh uh, he was exiled from Russia, um, and Germany basically granted him free passage by train across Germany. I, th- I think he, maybe he was hanging out in Switzerland um, because they figured he would go and kind of cause a ruckus if they did. So they 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 let him back, go back to Russia. Wow, that's that's kind of that's kind of clever of them. You know, it's like a little person weapon. You know, they yeah. sent a Lenin missile to <laughs> Russia. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And I mean, it kind of worked. Uh, you, you, they did get their, they did get Russia out of the war, but a lot of good it did them because America came sailing in anyway. Um, so yeah, that's just kind of one example of, um, of a school of history. Now you could even take this if, if the data is there and move over to quantitative history where you're really diving deep into the numbers to find patterns and, and examine these patterns to see if these, you know, if, if you can identify the inequalities, if that would have led to the conflict of this revolution. Um, and in the age of computers, quantitative history becomes a bit easier now with machine reading, able to, you know, scan in documents, go ahead and start running calculations for you, easily run word searches, that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah. That's quanti- so can a computer do history? Can um, a computer... <laughs> interpret history in a, in any sort of meaningful way i am not up to spec on artificial intelligence so i i don't know uh if a computer is able to kind of work in abstract theory for history um so i mean aren't you aren't you the ai guy anyway I know enough about it to know generally what it is but i do not know past that <laughs> I thought I remembered you being like into artificial intelligence or something. I mean, I, I can do some Python for machine learning and I can I can make a camera recognize my face. I do not really know what is going on in the gotcha. background. It's gotcha. all black magic to me. I can do it, but <laughs> I don't know um, how it works. So there is actually a field of history, digital history. Um, and it's a very broad, that's a broad term because digital history is like, well, is it doing history digitally or is it just presenting history digitally? And then both are, both are correct, to be honest. Um, I so, really want to say, or is it people using their fingers, their digits for history? There's a small sector of historians who are really fighting for that one. Yeah, you might you might be the only one doing it. Um, but so like digital history is, you know, some parts of digital history are digital repositories for archives. So uh, UNC Chapel Hill's documenting the South, Doc South. I use that repository all the time. And it's a collection of different 
documents that have been digitized and made available to historians and just general population. I, you could go right now and read the laws of the Confederacy if you wanted to. They have digitized that. So you could go in and look at what were their tax rates on the enslaved people? What was their policy on importations from England? You could go through and do all of that. Um, and so that's one aspect of digital history. And then another aspect of digital history is interpreting it for people. Um, there's various softwares for this purpose, Omeka, StoryMap.js, which is a product of Northwestern University Night Lab, I think. Um, uh, I, I mean, you even have people just running their own little WordPress blogs. That's digital history. They're, 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 they're interpreting history for themselves in many cases. So, and this, this would be kind of, you know, something I, I'm not going to say go do, but it would be kind of a fun little thing to, for, for both of us, maybe one day to take a topic, conduct our own research and come back and talk about what we've done without communicating at all for the week about what we're doing and see kind of the different approach we take. Um, me as a trained historian and you as just a someone Googler. with an interest. Yeah. A Googler or just a, someone with interest just to come back and look at the analysis, you know, that we we've conducted the, the just see. And I think that would, that would be a really good follow up to this episode to kind of just show how you can, yes, there are a set of facts, but what history really is, is how do you examine these facts? How do you how do you quantify them? What makes these facts matter? Um, what aspect of historical events are you going to look at and pull and say, oh, well, this is more important than this. A is more important than B here. Um, so the Tauschend acts were more important in causing the American Revolution than the... Um, French, uh, the French and Indian War, something like that. Gosh, yeah, that would that would be a difficult topic. I think if we did endeavor to do that, I think we should pick something in in recent, like a past one hundred years or so. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, one. So so my googling can be a little bit more directed. And two, uh, I I feel like once we get past that hundred year mark. I'm not going to be able to know anything about like what they're thinking. I'm going to yeah. be like, listen, they were really dumb. You know, they, they wear stupid clothes. Uh, and my, my analysis is going to be very haphazard. Have you ever, have you ever worn stockings and a vest and a petticoat and all that stuff? That is a very personal question. And yes. Yeah. They're not like that uncomfortable, to be honest. Well, we could go back. I mean, we could we could be the trendsetters. I'm not opposed. Might uh, be like that episode of Always Sunny in Philadelphia when they're trying to get their bar labeled as a uh, historical um, landmark and they're reenacting the American Revolution. We could do that. <laughs> um, Good idea. So here's a question for you. Yeah. When does history start to become history mm -hmm. and it's not current events? And I know that that, that is a very, like, general topic okay but imagine that you're looking at somebody's diary right yeah at what point is looking at that person's diary history versus just invasion of that per individual's <laughs> privacy um well see that's that's also a tough question because i'm someone who typically works in the antebellum u.s south so pre-1865 american south um 
But you have historians who study the early 2000s. You have historians who study the Reagan years. I'm currently in a seminar with a historian who has written a book on the Ronald Reagan years and um, and climate change during those years. Uh, she's a climate historian. So another whole field of history where she's she's looking at how climate has how climate change has affected local populations. So it really just comes down to it's there there really is no definitive date. It's not like we go to, we go to school and they're like if you talk about something that happened just 19 years ago, you are kicked out of this program and we don't ever want to see your face again. <laughs> You're not a real historian. You're not a real historian. But there there's re- and I'm not kidding, there's there's a heavy overlap between historians and journalists, to be honest. Journalists, in many cases, are just kind of current event historians. They're using some of the same techniques. They're, they're, look, they're investigating different avenues to examine why did this event take place. Um, so historians are just journalists who don't like dealing with today, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I, okay, I want to push back on that a, a little bit, though, because I, I feel like journalists... They want to do some investigation. Yes, why did this happen? But they also want the reader to keep reading what they're what they're pushing. So they they have their own bend. Nowadays, it's usually okay. Will the person click on this? Is it interesting enough to keep their attention for some period of time? I'm I'm talking more like trained journalists, not bloggers. Well, I, I'm talking about trained journalists too. Yeah. I mean, I think um, even even people who were you know journalists. 50 years ago, I feel like you're more likely to get a story that has general interest of the public than a story that might have historical impact, but isn't isn't presently very impactful. Well, and and historians are honestly do the same thing um, is you have you have historians who cater their work to the public. Just like you have journalists who are catering their work to the public, and you have journalists who are catering their work to a specific subset of people in a particular industry. So um, a a union journalist who, you know, investigate unions is not always going to be writing for the public. They might be writing specifically for unions or trade workers. Um, So. A historian is not always going to write for the general public. They're going to sometimes write for other historians. Um, so I think you're, you're right to an extent, yes, but you're looking at the public side of things. But if you pull back that curtain, you're going to see this whole exchange of ideas that really the public never, ever sees. And unfortunately, it's so ground, it's so caught up in all this jargon usually and, and, um, um, big words. I, I hate using that phrase, but oh God, historians love their big words, especially post-structuralists. Um, but okay, let, let me yeah. let me push back on that there as well, because if it is meant to be consumed by people, there are some issues inherent with that. But also, if it is not consumed by many people, by the general public, I think there's also some issues with that as well. If, if historians are passing ideas back and forth between other historians and they can collect these ideas, these wonderful things, and pass them back and forth and use all this high-minded language, what, what are they really doing? I mean, it, it's like they have a, a really great sort of invention, 
that is meant for just them, mm-hmm. right? They they have really sorted out how to appeal to themselves and what is the value to the public. And, and see, I think that's um, that's where a lot of academic history fails is that they don't really they don't really teach a lot of students especially in undergraduate why does this matter how can i how am i going to use this you tell people you're studying history oh you're going to be a teacher it's like the only purpose is necessarily to show other students history whereas really history can help you understand the world around you just like studying a science. Why is America so caught up in its whiteness? Why is the why are the Balkans such a tense area? Why is the Middle East, you know, seem like just this area of just powder kegs everywhere? It helps you understand the world around you. And when you understand the world around you, you hopefully make better informed decisions about what you want to see moving forward. Um, and so I think this is kind of where academic history has a shortcoming in that it, it has a communication problem in showing why this matters. And that's why you have the field of public history. It's a whole nother school of thought. I, I do a lot of public history myself, which is getting this high minded talk, like you said, out there. How do we how do we repackage this? into something that can be consumed by the general public who is not interested in your crazy jargon and high-minded historical theory they they that you you just want them to click it and want to actually click it and seek out more and so this is actually kind of we were talking about before you hit record history memes and this is where i see history memes as something that are really valuable um and i'm not talking where your you know boomer professor tries to make a <laughs> history meme. I'm talking more like these naturally evolving things that that you see pop up on your Twitter feed and on social media. These these things that are real, you know, they're 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 on your feed. They they pique your interest. You go to Wikipedia to look something up like, oh, surely the um, I think in World War One, the I think it was Liechtenstein sent uh, army uh, sent like a hundred troops into uh, Germany or Italy. They sent a hundred troops into Italy and came back with a hundred and one troops um, because one of the <laughs> Italians defected. So they ended up having a negative casualty rate. Um, but they, they, you know, you see memes about that all the time, and so you know me, I was like. What the hell is a Liechtenstein? And so I end up studying, why does Liechtenstein exist? This little tiny principality in the middle of Europe. How has it survived all these years? And it's a, um, I, I believe it's a former um, Holy Roman Empire relic, basically, um, from a German prince. But um, anyway, so I think that's, you know, history memes are a very valuable way, a natural way, not, not you can't. One thing about memes, you cannot artificially make a meme. You cannot artificially induce memes, really. You can't just will them into existence, it feels like it. They just have to kind of happen. Um, I, I I can agree with that. I, I think that there's some, some sort of genuine uh, sort of real feelings and behaviors that that a meme has to relate to mm-hmm. in order to actually be shared and, and have any sort of impact. So that it has to relate to something real, even if it's something ridiculous. Yeah. In order to be shared. So, yeah. No. 
Go ahead. So I guess my my thing is that history's conflict for me is that it's all about the past, but it can help us figure out what we should do moving forward, what we should mm-hmm. shoot for in the future. And I guess my my disconnect there is I think that there's a lot of people that are futurists, but I don't necessarily think of them as historians. I, I think of yeah. them as people who are who only think about the future. And I think about historians are people who are way caught up in the past and I I, I see little overlap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I won't get into futurism. I don't like it. Thinking about tomorrow is scary. Um, that's why I'm a historian. But yeah, it's just I, I agree with you. It's just historians just don't communicate. <laughs> um, and I feel like academic historians and, and I can't I'm, I don't want to speak with like the super broad brush because I've definitely worked with historians in academia who are phenomenal at communicating with the general public who are incredible. I see them on CNN. I see them. I see them doing the media tours. I see, you know, like writing opinion pieces in newspapers. Oh, who reads newspapers? Well, they get shared on social media a lot. Um, and. I think I think that that's where history needs to go is embracing this digital age and, you know, thinking about how do we share this in the future? How do we help people understand the world around them in the future? So, All right. What one question for you about history in general? Is there a dark side to history? Is there a piece or a theory or a way of looking at history that is generally bad or disruptive or causes harm to people? Um, there can be. I, I wouldn't say there's like this a specific thing you can do, um, but absolutely. So for the longest time, um, well, I think I have I think this, uh, you look at how Martin Luther King Jr. is portrayed in the United States today. Um, he's portrayed as a man who was constantly, oh, we have to do things peacefully, never get violent, you know, don't, don't push too hard or, or else we won't get what we want. And so I think you see a lot of authority appeal to that notion when in reality, you look at what Martin Luther King Jr. was writing. He, he was pushing for conflict. He said, we have to make people uncomfortable. He, he even, he even calls out white moderates who say, Oh, we want change. We just don't want it to happen too fast. Or we, you know, we don't want things that will disrupt it. So you hear, you, you look at how people got mad at the NFL protests when they were kneeling during the national anthem. What were, why get mad at that? You know, that that's not, that's not, that's not hurting you personally. It's not making you, it's not, not affecting how you're living, but it makes people uncomfortable because it forces them to think about things in a manner they're not normally forced to think about. And Martin Luther King Jr. was kind of, you know, about that. And, push our issues to the forefront even if we have to force it up there but you look at how he's portrayed today and it's it it erases a lot of what he was actually about and erasure um is probably the biggest threat as a historian is you know 
working to erase the contributions of people that don't fit a preconceived narrative that you want. So that that's what I would say is the dark side, like downplaying slavery um, as an example, right. or or playing up that we were the good guys in World War One and World War Two, and America, Britain, and France, and, and Russia, they didn't do anything. Well, no, we, it's okay to say Russia did bad stuff because they, they, they were our enemy, you know, so it's okay to talk about how the rape that they did, but no, America, American troops, they never raped any French or German girls, uh uh-uh. they wouldn't do that. They totally did. <laughs> um, the British were doing it. The French were doing it. Uh, the Germans were doing it. When there's war, there's rape, unfortunately. Um, so I would say erasing is probably the dark side of history and harmful is when you are erasing the the intents of what happened or you're erasing facts that might make people uncomfortable. I think that was a absolutely excellent answer, and I just put you on the spot for that. So, so kudos for that. What I heard from that little sort of exposition you just gave is that there's a bit of moral licensing that can take place with history, mm-hmm. where we can feel good about stuff that maybe we shouldn't feel good about, like where we can say, like, you know, we can feel okay about where this country is with its race relations. Because Martin Luther King existed, we can lean on that. We like him. We have our streets named after him. Therefore, we can we can feel good. And yeah. maybe maybe we should feel challenged. Maybe we shouldn't feel as comfortable as we do. And, and so maybe he's used to, to sort of morally license a lot of um, sort of anti-progressive stuff, as you were mentioning. And, and also just you know like you mentioned with wars you know we we're the good guys we get to feel good about we save people you know we 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 busted down the door in France and and we scooped up Europe and we ran out the of the, the you know the fiery building and we you know we saved the kitten from the tree mm-hmm. and we should we get to feel good about that so it's almost like a a sort of prescriptive history that we're giving ourselves that that just feels better and makes us think better about ourselves and it reminds us of, of it reminds me of our conversation last week where we were talking about what we are connected to um, you said last week the people were desperate for a connection to their past to Britain yeah yeah and I, I think that a lot of people have that with history we desperately want to be connected to history to people in history even if it's not necessarily a familial relation just just a connection to with them in history so we can feel better about who we are. Yeah. Um, I'm proud of you <laughs> uh, because that's, you. that's one of the ways I look at history is, is people. I have had a lot of growth over this <laughs> single episode. Oh, your character growth has been amazing. The, the audience <laughs> is just going to be like, wow, that's a, we raised that boy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, I think you're right. And people want to draw a connection to the past. It's like when I brought up people doing genealogy for their families and trying to draw a connection to a famous historical figure. Oh, I'm related to John Smith. <laughs> you know, it's like, why does that? Why does that matter to you? Why does that part of what defines you? And a lot of people define themselves through their ancestry in many cases. And this is kind of a long running tradition. But the other thing to keep in mind is not everyone is capable. Not everyone has the privilege of going back and tracing their ancestry back to the 17, 16, 1500s. If you look at the slave trade, it disrupted millions of people's lines. 
basically. And it becomes absolutely impossible to, you know, conduct a genealogy search for, for large groups of people. And so, um, so yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right in that people don't like the thinking about things that make them uncomfortable in relation to kind of how they've now ad- defined who they are and who their family is and what their life is about, basically. Um, but, right. And, and I, I think, too, there's a bit of the, the the people from history aren't here anymore, so we get to sort of say what they were, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I, I think of, like, Winston Churchill, and I really like the guy because oh, he's got a of lot shit. of funny quotes. <laughs> but I, I also know that he allowed a lot of crap to go on in India and didn't feed the people that he was put over there to help continue the war effort and he allowed cities to be bombed and you know made a lot of very tough decisions i i know those things but i also have a friendly image of him so i feel like if somebody came up and they and they mentioned all these terrible things about this person i'd be like well you don't know him like I do. You know, he's, he's you know. We're going we're gonna to do an episode on Winston Churchill just so I can absolutely shred him for you. Oh, I, I like him, though. Yeah, I, I, hate, I just like I the idea Churchill. of him. Um, but, I mean, you're right. And, you know, you people don't like to see other people that they revere knock down a peg or want to admit, like, oh, maybe they weren't such a great fella. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, so I guess, I guess this is history static in that way. No, no. History is always changing. We're always coming up with new ways to analyze it. Um, I can't remember the particular historian's name, um, off the top of my head, but there is a historian who basically argues that his historians are more of scientists than political scientists are, um, because historians constantly are reevaluating, with new historical theory um, and revisiting what they've already done and applying scientific methodology, essentially coming up with a hypothesis, testing it with counterfactuals and evidence, and then concluding, okay, was my hypothesis correct? Was my thesis correct? Um, He basically has this silly line where he's like, political scientists are only ever correct after the fact, when they state the obvious, and then they essentially pat themselves on the back. Um, and for the record, I am a political science minor, and from, from <laughs> that, that basically, I think, accurately sums up um, a lot of at least entry-level political science. I'm sure the later stuff is more complicated than, than that. But I, I think generally my idea of like high academia is a lot of people patting each other on the back. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I wish it was that. <laughs> That'd be real nice. <laughs> it's a lot of, well, you need to prove this. This is not proof to me, or you don't pr- you don't argue this effectively. You need to go in and change this and ex- re-examine it in this aspect. Um, if it was just always patting ourselves, patting each other on the back, um, we'd never get anything done, and we'd never be pushed forward to try harder. Well, that's good. So disagreeable people are academics. <laughs> Do you find me disagreeable? I find you... Uh, cheerfully disagree. I, I don't mean disagreeable <laughs> as in like I would not want to, you know, stand behind you at a coffee shop. I mean disagreeable as if I say something that you disagree with, you will tell me. I don't agree with that. I would never tell you. 
you know, th- this whole thing, it makes me think of Christopher Columbus. Because when I grew up, Christopher Columbus was somebody that was like alongside Abe Lincoln. You know, he was somebody who was a good guy. He was an explorer. He was this like, you know, wonderful innovator. And people really liked Christopher Columbus. And now I feel like it is the most popular thing in the world to to dislike and, and disavow Christopher Columbus. And everything that he he did and stands for, and maybe that's a good thing, maybe that's a bad thing, but I do think it is a bit of evidence that uh, history doesn't stay the same. That well, changed just in my lifetime. I don't know if it necessarily. It maybe it filtered down to the uh, primary school level, um, but Christopher Columbus is a shitbag. Has kind of been around for a little bit among historians now. Well, I just figured it out not that <laughs> but, long but ago. That's, so. why that's why I'm saying it may have just kind of filtered down more into the popular consciousness, um, especially especially as um, uh, America is waking up to the realization that race relations in the United States are not as cozy as they thought it was, basically, um, that Americans have been turning a blind eye to the plight of other Americans for a long time now because they assumed just because Jim Crow laws ended that, well, I guess we're in good shape. So, I, I think that relates to like American exceptionalism, which I'm surprised has taken us this long to mention because I think that's that's yeah. like one, one historical term that I, I know because it's been on the news and I am <laughs> a very simple person. I just absorb what's around me. Um, but yeah, the idea that we are great and wonderful – and there's nothing that we have ever done that has led to harm and everything that America is. If you are an American, you are you are good. That is, Americans are good through and through all the time. That's who we are, what we are. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I hate American exceptionalism. That This is God's chosen land, but I mean, that, that kind of goes back to the American Revolution too, and we can get more into detail with that on another episode. But um, no, you're absolutely right. You know, I, I read about an episode that happened during Prohibition, where the government, the federal government, decided to take ethanol that was used for farming and mix it with methanol to keep people from drinking it. And, you know, so it's usually like pure alcohol. Yeah. And then they would mix it with this methanol that causes you to either die or go blind. And 10,000 people, around 10,000 people are estimated to have died from the government who very publicly put methanol in this this alcohol trying to keep people from, from drinking. And I, I don't think that's like... I don't think that's like a politicized topic. I just think that's like an interesting topic of like clearly on review of that policy that the government enacted at that time, there were bad side effects. There were things that should not have been done. Well, I mean, um, yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, if you want to if you want to know um, some real sad stuff, um, even into the 1970s north carolina had a eugenics board to forcibly sterilize people the state running uh sterilization programs (laughs) 
Like, yeah, that is that is awful, and that is like such a like recent thing that there are people very much alive and not not actively dying who were harmed by that. And but that's the thing is like America's not special; it's another country on the world that has existed in history and just like every other country has done many good things and it's done many bad things and historians it's our responsibility to, to examine both um i know people don't like historians who challenge their way of thinking that certain things were good um but there are plenty there are plenty of histories you can go read that are more positive and uplifting it's just unfortunately like bad news bad news sells so does bad history i guess Right. Is there something in history that you can think of that in American history was both very bad and very good? Mm, Good and bad are loaded. Um, Okay. So had positive effects for people and had negative effects for people. Yeah. I mean, I guess um, I, I guess you could point to you could point to the uh, rise of industrial farms um, as something as a positive and negative negative in that it's absolutely destroyed our environment and is destroying the world we live in and is completely unethical uh, to its workers. Um, but it has positive effects in the sense that food is more abundant than ever in the United States, you can, you can turn any street corner and find almost something to eat basically in terms of a store or something. Um, but then it's funny. Well, it's not funny. It's really sad because those same people who work on these industrial farms in some cases can't even afford the food that they're, they're producing because their wages are so low and they're so taken advantage of. So there, there's kind of an example of you could look at a history from two different perspectives here of a history of the rise of industrial farms has created a plethora of food options to where you, you can go anywhere and find food, basically. But it's also taken advantage of workers and harmed our environment. So that would be one, I guess. That, that's a, that was a good one. Yeah, I, I think that's... that's uh... That's pretty. That sounds pretty negative, though. The way you described it, that sounds like well, oh, yes, just, just destroys everything. But I mean, our way of life is built upon that foundation. So you know, it it that could be considered a positive in that I'm I'm comfortable enough here to sit here and record a podcast and not be outside right now because it's cooler and I'm prepping ground to for next year's crops or something like that. Right. Okay. So it enables a cozy lifestyle. But has repercussions for the environment and yeah, for and the mean, people working in the industry. And I mean, life in general, you you look through history, life, and this is, could be because I, I approach it from a Marxist perspective anyway, is built on the exploitation of others at all times. You, you will not find any event in history, any any progress in history, if if you want to look at history as a progressional uh, uh, methodology, um, where someone is not being exploited for the gain of others to progress forward. So should we feel bad about taking advantage of other people? If, if that is a consistent theme in history, are the people who are the real victors in history, people who take advantage of others and don't feel bad about it? Or they feel bad about it, but they don't feel bad enough about it, and they do it anyway? And see, that that's... A question everyone has to ask for themselves because it's hard for a lot of people to say I, I think most people will agree like well you know the exploitation of workers on farms is bad 
but what can I do about it? And that that's kind of the issue is it's hard for people to always feel bad about something at all times. It's just it's impossible and it's not healthy for people. And so I think I think historians can make people aware of the circumstances that have led up to it. And like you said, you know, we don't want to repeat history. So it's like hopefully recognizing patterns in the future of people being exploited and working to try to avoid that from happening again. That sounds like a pretty noble view of history. That'd be very nice if we could get that. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's a very idealistic. um, It's a very idealistic approach. And, but idealism really is only idealism when only one or two people are really embracing an idea. If everyone starts working together towards a particular idea, they'll get it done. It, it doesn't become just idealism. It becomes practical. Right now, my idea of a uh, of a world where no one is wanting for shelter, food, water, or health care um, – seems idealistic but if everyone starts working towards that goal um even if at the expense of some of their luxuries it's no longer idealistic it becomes more practical um but that is a really good idea how how long have you been sitting on that one i feel like you should have brought that up earlier i just kind of stream of consciousness that now (laughs) 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 that's my thing um, no, I mean, you should have been pushing that that idea of the world from the get go since you since you came up with it. But then it becomes hard because it's just like, well, I'm just one person. It does. I can't really do anything. But, you know, that. Yeah, we're way off history now. But anyway. <laughs> well, I, I do think there comes a point where you look at history, the things that happened in the past and you say, what on earth do I do with this moving forward? Because mm-hmm. I am in the present and. So yeah, I, I think eventually it's sort of a natural progression, in my opinion anyway, to arrive someplace, look around and say, what what do I do with this, if anything at all? Do I just ignore it because it's either too much to think about or not very nice? Or do I you know, make some change to something that I personally am doing? And then in very exceptional cases – do I go out and try to get everybody else to think like me because of some realization that I have made and move from there? And see, and this is where kind of having a historical background can help because you can pull examples from the past to help prove why you think a certain way or it helps you understand how to gather evidence and argue that evidence in a way that helps people understand about the world around them. So, OK, how do we how do we wrap up? What do we say? What is history at the end of the day? It's whatever you want it to be. Okay. I feel like we could have opened with that. Yeah, but then they wouldn't listen. Ah, we got them. So it's like it's like when you take a test and you don't read the instructions and you just go ahead and answer all the questions at the, you know, you get back to test and it says like, oh, if you answered all the questions and didn't skip to the end, you fail. <laughs> That's basically what we just subjected everyone to. And I'm sure they will appreciate it. terrible child i was yeah or when you or when you cheated off my test in gym class and got a higher score than me (laughs) oh yeah we had the same answers you cheated off me and got a higher score (laughs) uh yeah i remember that yeah jokes on you now i'm getting my masters
<laughs> yeah. Oh. I'm only seventy thousand dollars in debt. Get get wrecked, kid. <laughs> oh, you got me. I win.